0: living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order welcome to keeping the well in wealthy with barbara archer from hightower barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice she addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with (coughs) your host, Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara, how are you?
2: I'm terrific today, Eric, and how are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm fantastic! So good to be back with you. I'm, I'm just—I get excited every time I see a meeting on my calendar with you. I just know that I'm going to learn something and get to hang out with you. So I'm, I'm having some fun already.
2: Well, good because I'm going to kind of shock you today. Oh, we're going to talk about eating disorders, and you know I'm kind of an analytic and love to research our topics, right?
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Well, I recently discovered some very startling statistics that prompted me to invite our guest today. Were you aware that eating disorder deaths are second only to opioid overdoses? Did you know that?
1: I did not know that.
2: I did not either, which I found to be just stunning. And the estimate is that one eating disorder death will occur every 52 minutes. So this shook me up and I Mm -hmm. thought we need to let our audience know more about this terrible disease. Because 9% of our U.S. population, or nearly 29 million of us, will have an eating disorder in our lifetime. And this disease does not discriminate. It affects all ages, genders, ethnicities, and body sizes. And interestingly, Eric, most individuals with eating disorders are not even visibly overweight. So yeah. I was shocked.
1: Yeah, that is that is absolutely Mind-blowing to me that's yeah. second second only to opioid. And the, yeah, I had no idea.
2: I didn't either. So we have our guest today, Dr. Ellen Rome, an MD, MPH, who's going to help us understand this deadly disease. And since you work with many young male adolescents, listen in, consider mm-hmm. what else you might want to ask her, and we'll have a little conversation later.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate that.
2: Well, look forward to speaking with you. So let me introduce Dr. Ellen Rome. Dr. Rome is the head of the Center for Adolescent Medicine at Cleveland Clinic, a board-certified pediatrician, and among the first board-certified adolescent medicine specialists. Dr. Rome received her BA from Yale and her medical degree from Case Western and her master's in public health from Harvard. Dr. Rome is a professor of pediatrics at Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine at CASE. She has held leadership positions in organizations serving youth and chaired or served on numerous committees for the Eating Disorders for the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine and the Medical Care Task Force for the Academy for Eating Disorders and American Academy for Pediatrics. Ellen is an international speaker and author of two books with Drs. Mehmet Oz and Mike Royzen. You, the Owner's Manual for Teens, and you, Raising Your Children from First Breath to First Grade. Dr. Rome's research interests include eating disorders, obesity, and reproductive health. Welcome, Ellen. How are you today? Glad to be here. Thank you for having me here. Well, I'm so excited to, you. I guess you heard Eric and I saying how undereducated we were on eating disorders. So as a pediatrician, how did you come to be attuned to the great need of treating eating disorders?
3: Well, I went to an all-girls school, and we could see two per class of 50 to 60 kids every year. And we got good at recognizing it, but we sure didn't know how to help. And I didn't learn that till I was in fellowship at Boston Children's, where it was part of our bread and butter. And when I moved back to Cleveland, I thought I was going to be solely in the reproductive health space. Mm-hmm. and When I had a first young person with an eating disorder walk through the doors, I'm like, Oh, I know how to do this. I learned this in my three-year fellowship and the floodgates opened. Oh my gosh. And there's such a need. And we at Cleveland Clinic Children's do the medical care for children and adolescents and young adults with eating disorders. And we have, we partner with them our therapists and psychiatrists and dietitians and teammates because this really is a, a set of biopsychosocial illnesses this means it affects mind and body and this is not something that
2: anyone grows up saying oh i really want to have an eating disorder when i hit 15 right but if someone i hear what you're saying about environmental factors is that what i'm hearing as well so can something like a physical illness or a child being bullied or some type of trauma trigger an eating disorder? Absolutely. So these are epigenetically
3: impacted. Wait a minute. You used the, the word nurture. genetic? Genetic? Epigen- Epigenetic. So
2: Epigenetic.
3: That means it's nature and nurture. Okay. So epi is the environment, genetic is the gene pool. So hmm. some stress in life. Can activate a gene. We don't know everything there is to know about the genetics yet, but they can be a factor. So if you have a family member who struggled with an eating disorder, you or your kid, maybe, or your grandkid, may be more at risk for that than somebody without that risk. Well, that's, we, I had no idea about that. And we can
2: see all
3: sorts of things being the trigger. So you mentioned bullying, that's a big one.
1: Oh, we also okay.
3: have kids who get mono or COVID or something else and go off their feed. And then that sets them on a path of disordered eating and the medical complications thereof. Have a pandemic. That's a great exacerbator of disordered eating. So we all saw globally this huge increase in eating disorders and anxiety and depression and other just downstream effects of the of this pandemic.
2: So am I hearing this can be biological, social, mental, and have some genetic connections, all of and, these?
3: And physical, because it, it certainly Golly.
2: has so many
3: physical consequences.
2: Oh my gosh. So what are some of the common warning signs or behaviors that can assist family or friends to identify eating disorders early? You mentioned going to a girls' school, so... You know, maybe you are more sensitized to noticing changes in people. There are lots of red flags that parents and families and teachers can identify.
3: And by the time you're worried about an eating disorder, those behaviors are likely already established. So any early worry that this could be an eating disorder bears pursuing and having medical personnel versed in Detection and care of a kid with eating disorder, it's worth pursuing early. So, some of those red flags include dizziness, fainting, weakness, tiredness, skipping meals, saying, Oh, I ate elsewhere, and having fewer and fewer times when you see that person eat. And I, my expertise is children, but remember, these are things that can happen in old age, middle age, and young age. So, and it's not just girls. It's not just girls. One out of four kids are boys and, you know, one out of five to one out of four. And Mm. it's more invisible often in boys or in youth of color because people think it's the upper middle class white kids problem, but it's not. It could be your geriatric aunt. It could be your neighbor. It could be somebody in your classroom.
2: So when I see, let's say an older client that comes in and they seem somewhat confused and I ask what they had for lunch today, because I've noticed even sometimes that as older people don't get a proper nutrition, they sometimes seem a little, not themselves. And when they tell me it's tea and toast or a cup of soup, and I hear that, then it's a good time perhaps to reach out to some family members to make sure they are getting proper nutrition. Is that what I'm hearing too?
3: Yeah, Absolutely. And with teenagers or uh, middle schoolers, they reach an age when there's more meals that can happen outside of the house. Same way in the geriatric years, you may have fewer meals that are with a family member. And so it's worthwhile figuring out what is that person eating? And if you're worried, have more meals with that person to figure out, is there a block to their eating? Is it food access, is it, which isn't necessarily
2: an eating disorder, but which can cause disordered eating. Oh, and you mentioned, so let's talk about that for a moment, disordered eating. Can -hmm. you expand on that a little bit for me?
3: So disordered eating is
2: the symptom when put into
3: its extreme, it's, it becomes an eating disorder. So disordered eating can happen in all sorts of circumstances. So disordered eating happens in my patient who doesn't have food access at home because uh, a parent doesn't end up grocery shopping and this kid can't get themselves to stores too young or whatever else. Oh, that can be disordered eating. But disordered eating can also mean binge eating or it can mean restricting, not getting enough in or missing a food group or missing a couple of food groups. So disordered eating is kind of a blanket term for anything that's not optimal or, or
2: wellness-oriented eating. Well, you mentioned purging as one or not eating. Can you explain some of the different types of eating disorders? Are there names for each one of them? And, and what's the different types of disorders that are we should be aware of?
3: Well, most people are familiar with anorexia nervosa. That's the extreme self or body image dislike and restricting. It used to be associated with no period, you know, turning off your periods, not having periods in the first place. Now, because we have so many boys, we got rid of that diagnostic criteria. And it comes in two types, restricting type and a binge purge type. So just because somebody binges and purges doesn't mean they necessarily have bulimia. Bulimia nervosa is defined by the binges. And it literally in Greek means appetite like a bowl. And so Mm bulimia, you're binging and then compensating either with overexercise or diet, or relaxers or vomiting or some other means of purging. And you're doing that at least once a week for at least three three months. Now, because- So those... wait a minute,
2: before you go there. Mm-hmm. So when we see someone eating, they could still have an eating disorder because they're doing that in private or on their own. So it looks like they have a great appetite. Oh, Correct. okay. Wow. And- There's subtypes of anorexia.
3: So for instance, say somebody mindset is anorexia and yet they haven't lost the weight yet. They may be obese or overweight or normal weight then, but they're doing all the same behaviors. That's atypical anorexia.
0: Hmm.
3: So that's a new category. And then there's another (laughs) one, subthreshold bulimia nervosa. So they haven't been doing it once a week for three months. Maybe it's once a month. Maybe it's once a week for a couple of weeks, and then they don't for a while. So that's, doesn't That's considered atypical. Yes. And then another one, which is the most common, and boy, did this happen a lot during the pandemic, is binge eating disorder, where you're eating to the point of guilt and more calories than one would normally consume. Mm. So that is something that, and the difference is, it's not the same thing as when a bunch of teen girls have a sleepover and everyone picks out. A okay. kid with binge eating disorder has relentless guilt over that action. And they may not be purging or compensating, but they're still definitely having the binges. So that's a very, very, very common global health problem. And that so, can lead to overweight, obesity, and all the medical complications thereof.
2: So I'm still trying to personally understand how we can identify these, whether they're children or adults, boys or girls, man, woman, what can we look for? And so one of the things I'm thinking of purging, can a dentist help identify an eating disorder? A dentist and and the dental
3: hygienist are your allies in this. If you're worried about a family member purging, you can give the dental hygienist a heads up and say, I'm worried about purging. And if the person is somebody who vomits intentionally or unintentionally, Mm -hmm. it's fair game to tell the hygienist at the dentist office, I vomit, can you give me an extra good cleaning? Because the erosions happen in different places. It's the inside lingual and occlusal surfaces from acid going out as opposed to our regular cavity areas. And so, giving a really good cleaning is part of helping prevent them from needing um, root canal later.
2: Oh my so gosh,
3: it's, yeah. it's a really important thing. And we have people that have completely eroded their teeth from purging. So it's really worthwhile being transparent with the dental hygienist and the, and the dentist so they can help identify. It's also fair game as a parent to give them a heads up and say, Hey, I'm worried that my child surreptitiously vomits. Can you give them the extra good cleaning, especially from the inside
2: out? Oh, gosh, sure. I mean, it's a way to kind of find out, too, if what you're suspecting is, in fact, happening. And no, if, it's if, if a family member
3: or a teacher or friends
2: suspect an eating disorder,
3: take that seriously. And if your pediatrician or family practice doc isn't really listening to your concerns, take those concerns to a professional who's versed in the care of youth with eating disorders. We see in our practice, kids who haven't had a period in longer than six months, which is a risk for kids' bone um, in adults. And the pediatrician didn't create a sense of concern partnering with that parent on that, or the pediatrician might've, but the parent didn't hear it. So, when periods turn off, when a kid's get up and go, got up and went. Okay. uh, So these are,
2: these are all your tell flags,
3: Mm -hmm, red flags. If suddenly they're not eating any meals with you anymore. Oh, I ate at home. I ate at the office. I ate somewhere else. Those are all red flags. Mm -hmm. And conversely for the bingers, if suddenly all of the food in the house or, all of the something that's supposed to last a couple of weeks is gone in a day. Like all the Oreos? Right, or whatever it is. Uh, So if food is vanishing at an accelerated rate or not being used at an exceptionally slow rate, those are some of the
2: tells. Okay, no, that's very helpful. Well, you mentioned a pediatrician for a younger person and I'm thinking even very elderly people, geriatric physicians, when they identify that there is some eating concerns, can you describe the types of treatment options that are available and why that early detection is important in that treatment? So backing up a step, the growth chart is
3: the parent and the pediatrician's best friend. So if you see a kid whose height stops growing when it shouldn't be, or their weight shoots up or shoots down off the regular track of where they've been growing, that's a red flag. And that's something to bring to the pediatrician and say, hey, look, I'm worried about this and figure out what's going on. The realms of treatment, there's different paths. And I'm going to speak
2: about for the young person first. So in- Well, wait, I'm going to interrupt one second. Because- you mentioned growth charts, and most parents are more in tune to that for younger children. So, how early do you ever see eating disorders? The youngest
3: patient I've seen, and similar from my partners, would be a five-year-old who had had true binges and purges since age two and a half. What? We all, yes. Um, this wait. Young wait. Person, yeah. Horrible. Oh my gosh. Now, this young person had been sexually abused, and her automatic response, not learned from anywhere, but just her intrinsic response was
2: to binge and purge. Is that because they feel like they have some control over something after they've she been traumatized? Was, or he wasn't conscious of that at mm. five. Yeah, at five. Oh my golly. And that brings So to the you- growth chart would be it would
3: apply at a five year old, sure and we see kids with restricting from anorexia, there's a whole new category of eating disorders also that is called ARFID, or Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. This diagnosis is only a, only 10 years old. And back in 2010, a bunch of us in the National Eating Disorders Quality Improvement Collaborative, uh, where our agenda is to do better at what we do, to improve the quality and safety of how we help diagnose and treat kids with eating disorders. And that's called ARFID? ARFID, ARFID. Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. So we were studying anorexia and we found this set of kids who had all the physiology, had lost the weight, lost, lost heart muscle, everything, constipation, all of the physical things, but they didn't have the mindset. If you asked them if they uh, what they thought they had away, they're like, oh, well, I want a game. And so we studied these and we presented it to the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual revision people for DSM-5 thinking, all right, it'll be in DSM-6, which hasn't come out yet. And- I don't know like, what oh,
2: DSM-6 oh, is.
3: Diagnostic, Statistic Manual, fifth edition, which came out in 2013 oh, okay. versus the next revision, which is still in the works. We thought it wouldn't be even a thing yet but they were like, wow, this is really a thing. And they put us in DSM-5, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, as a new diagnosis. So, so ARFID has been existent since uh, as a diagnosis since 2013. And in this last decade, we've been learning about what is it, how do, you get, how do you get it better? And it comes in kind of three buckets, but you can be in more than one bucket or you might not quite fit those buckets. So one bucket is the kids who are super picky, like, they may not like textures. And a lot of our kids with autism, they fall into this thing. They don't want foods to touch. Or kids with OCD, they're worried about something that's interfering with eating. So they're not getting enough in. The next bucket is the kids who got mono or COVID or something else and went off their feed and then just lose their interest. So they aren't getting food in because the appetite's not there. And then a third bucket is consists of all those kids who are avoiding something. So that eight year old who chokes on a Starbucks, uh, a starburst and never wants to choke again, or okay. the person who has something where they vomit and they never want to vomit again, or the kid who has chronic belly pain and doesn't want to have pain. So they're avoiding eating in order to avoid the pain. So you can be in more than one bucket, but that's a way to kind of think about how ARPID can come about in a kid.
4: Excuse the interruption. I know you're listening to High Towers Keeping the Well and Wealthy podcast, but if you have questions related to these or other wellness and financial issues, please reach out to your advisor or go to hightoweradvisors.com to find a financial advisor near you. Now, back to Barbara.
2: That's very helpful. I mean, that's yeah. interesting and, and something parents can take take internally and pay attention to when they see their children eating or not eating. So if your kid is super picky,
3: but they're growing along their growth curve, Mm -hmm. you don't have to worry so much about it as long as they're getting a balance of foods, even if it's the kindergartner who's only getting peanut butter and jelly and one kind of fruit, a multivitamin to get anything that would have been a green vegetable. So again, if they're growing great and they're getting all the food groups in somehow, some way, it's not a worry. If, as happened to one of my colleagues, the family has to drive three hours to get the right chicken finger dinosaur thing that the kid will, and that's the only (laughs) thing the kid's eating, that's dysfunctional for the family. That may be more of the ARFID, so so ARFID, because that kid would have fallen off the growth curve, but for this family jumping through inordinate hoops. So um, that's more of an ARFID
2: kind of a kid when it's really interfering with family. And you also mentioned heart issues and bone issues. And so let's talk about that early detection and what happens the longer someone is suffering from an eating disorder?
3: So if, you're, if you've are if you got a restrictive eating disorder where you don't get enough in, there's a whole chain of events that happen head to toe. Most life-threatening is you start losing muscle mass, including heart muscle. So instead of having Simone Biles or LeBron James, really strong, slow, effective heart muscle depolarizing and repolarizing, You get a little wimpy heart muscle that's barely doing a beat, you know, a little depolarized and repolarized. That means beat and get ready for the next beat. And so a tell would be a very low heart rate. And now that so many people have smart watches, if they are under 50 awake or under 40 asleep, that may mean that they're not getting the nutrition they need. It may not just be an athlete's heart, even if you come from a whole line of athletes. And those numbers ballpark are fifty
2: awake and forty above
3: fifty, great. Above forty, asleep, great. Okay. If and below that, that's a tell. Other things, loss of periods that can reflect a loss of bone for older women. If they get their bone density and they're very osteopenic, figure out are they getting? And we think in terms of simple things. So at the clinic, we go six, five, four, three, two, one, zero, go six cups of fluids a day minimum. On a hot day, it may be eight or 10. Five a day fruits and veggies. Every kindergartner learns that one. Four a day calcium servings, which if you're under 10, it's three a day. And six five, four, three, two, three meals a day with three food groups, protein, fat, carb. So avocado toast, throw an egg or some feta on it, Got it. Um, to get three food groups two snacks for kids uh, with at least two food groups. So peanut butter crackers or cheese and crackers or hummus and pita, as opposed to just the crackers. And then one, we designed for youth to make sure they actually can sleep and protect brain that way because sleep's an important one as well. And if you're starved, you're not gonna have disrupted sleep. If you have depression or anxiety, you may have disrupted sleep, but anyway, one hour before bed, disconnect from all their screens and personal enslavement devices. Absolutely. So that they can actually get sound sleep. And then zero is zero missed meals. So six, five, four, three, two, one, oh, go. And with the little kids as well, we can also use give and get three compliments a day,
2: you know, so that they're- Oh, that's cute. Sure. As well. Self-esteem, very important. So Um, once this has been identified and and we want to avoid some of these terrible side effects, heart, muscle loss, bone loss, what kind of treatment options can you as a pediatrician offer and who would be the team that would be built around that patient? Beautiful question. So for
3: the under 18 crowd, Family based treatment or family based therapy, also called FBT, is an evidence based way to put the parents in charge of the meals 100% in the first phase. So, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, the parent is preparing and making sure the kid gets it in.
2: Now, so, we can stop blaming mom for all this, right? Yeah. I'm so just well, checking.
3: The only thing mom can blame herself for might be her gene pool. Oh, well, she doesn't go. have any control over that. No control. But so stage two FPT, the kid might be in charge of lunch or a snack. And stage three, the kid's in charge saying, hey, did I get all my fats in? You know, how do I do on my protein? Because parents often don't realize the brain zero through 26 need, you know, like kid brains need 50 to 90 grams of fat a day. So a parent who's had a heart attack or cancer may be on a no fat diet for their own health as advised by their mm-hmm. doctor. But
2: not appropriate for a young person. Not
3: appropriate for an under twenty-six-year-old because they're still making myelin and cognitive pathways, neural pathways, and those require that grams to make those fatty sheaths, which are the what we
2: call the myelin.
3: So, in any case,
2: so as um, parents, we have to be sensitive to that as well. So, how Uh, we eat is not not necessarily right for the child. Correct.
3: And we also have people that will go vegetarian, kids or adults. And not realize how to do that in a healthy way where they're getting the fat grams, where they're getting the protein, where they're getting all the food groups. So we have kids who will be vegetarian, but won't eat a single vegetable or a bean <laughs> or anything. So that doesn't work so well. You have to, no. have to make sure they can do it in a healthy way. So FBT, if a kid with a restrictive eating disorder in the first month of FBT gains weight appropriately, mm-hmm. that's predictive that a year from now they're medically going to be in a much better place.
2: Oh, that's that's a big relief. I love hearing that. So, so F- stepping yeah, in,
3: stepping in actually works, and you do that in partnership with a therapist versed in FBT for okay. the care of you. So you have a
2: therapist,
3: your pediatrician, or an adolescent medicine specialist, okay, and a dietitian to help with what am I eating, how am okay. I eating, and so that's a minimal team. Some families uh, FBT really just doesn't work and you know that usually in that first month if counting with the coach with the team so if once the team is assembled and it can be a virtual team doesn't have to be in person for all of these things okay if if fpt isn't working the other levels of care for somebody that needs 24/7 monitoring residential care is at a place like veritas or uh, you know or other place where they're getting 100% care. Can be- How
2: can you decide when it should be inpatient or outpatient treatment? So when, when do you make that decision?
3: Acute medical stabilization, kind of what we'll do in our hospital, in a medical hospital, is when the heart rate's less than 50, they they're ab- they have abnormal electrolytes, their potassium's off, or they have an EKG abnormality, or they're acutely suicidal, we will bring them in.
2: Okay. Good.
3: And then so you, res- you do
2: see those extremes and that's when you know Every they day. really have to be treated inpatient. Okay.
3: Every day. And then residential would be for somebody who's, who's medically stable, but still needs 24-7 care for their own safety and relearning how to eat. The next level would be what we call day treatment program or DTP. It's also called a partial hospital program or PHP. Eating disorder world loves all these initials. But so in any case, Day treatment program, some people don't need residential and can start right there. And that's like five to 10 hours, five days a week, where you're getting at least two meals and a snack monitored, and hopefully some skills to handle the distress of that uh, for that kid, either virtually or in a treatment setting. And
2: the the therapy, I'm hearing the therapy is really important. The
3: the therapy is really the food there. Okay. Getting those meals in, because it turns out all the skills in the world and all the therapy in the world won't work unless the kid's getting fat food is the first medicine
2: food is medicine yeah
3: yes food is love and food is medicine there there we go so we have fbt we have residential we have day treatment program where most of the skills in this side of the pathway happen are in intensive outpatient therapy which if somebody's already getting the meals in then they can be in IOP or intensive outpatient. And that's one to three hours, usually five days a week to start. Sometimes it goes down to one day a week where they're learning how to act opposites. The eating disorder says, don't you dare eat that. That's going to make you obese. And you eat that ice cream cone anyway, or distraction or all sorts of interpersonal effectiveness skills that help not just with the eating disorder, but with a teacher that you need to partner with better or a boss that's not serving you well someday, or vice versa, uh, or a partner or a college roommate who could be triggering in their disordered eating.
2: So, So they can relapse. Even if they've gone through this program, something can come up in their lives and they can fall back into an old pattern.
3: Right. So in IOP or eventually with
2: FBT, they need to learn those skills. Got it. That's important. So has treatment morphed over time or specifically the part that families do play in recovery? Absolutely. In the 90s, it was a parentectomy, kind of like an appendectomy. Let's carve
3: the parent out of the equation, which doomed families to a lifetime of not very fun family dinners or holidays or other times where food and family went together. But after it, parents were woven in as an integral part of the solution. And thank for families, yes, thank goodness. And for families that are trying to figure out their path through FBT, the Feast website is about family based therapy and resources to make it easier for families. Because every meal, it feels like you're pushing this kid out of an airplane with a bungee cord. Mm,
2: that and, has to be difficult.
3: Yes, the kid with guilt or fear of eating, it, it's a terrifying event. So families need to figure out, one, it's not their fault. Two, how do we manage the meals? How do we get the food in? With a lot of families, I'll actually have the kid name their eating disorder so that the family can then disinvite it to that meal. I have, I have a couple of favorites. One now college-age patient calls her as Voldemort. Oh, gosh. Great really? name. Brilliant young person. Old, and, old Harry Potters, sure. Yes. And so when she was successfully able to go back to college, the parents got her a cake that said basically F U. Voldemort. Oh,
2: and that's cute. She
3: was able to eat that cake and launch and successfully
2: manage getting back to college. which was Those just- successes must be so rewarding for you. Oh, that's got to be um, great. And then another favorite name
3: was a nine-year-old. I nearly fell out of my chair. Uh, hopefully I had my best poker face on. But she called hers Fred. And when I asked what that meant to her, she goes, oh, freaking ridiculous eating disorder. Oh, my gosh. creative. So the family with humor and laughter could say, no, no, no. Fred's not invited to dinner tonight. We just want you. Um, And so So it gives them a way to demonize and exorcise the eating disorder and still love and support their loved one.
2: Well, so what's the best way to talk to someone who might have an eating disorder, whether it's a friend or family member? What can we do? How do we approach this? Great, great question.
3: It's fair game to say, I've noticed X, Y, and Z. I've noticed you're looking more pale or it seems like you're bruising really easily or you have more stomach upset than other people. And I'm, I'm worried because you're looking like you're losing weight. Or I'm worried because of whatever else that you see. How can I help you? Who have you you been able to talk to about this so far?
2: And for that person that doesn't want help or is in denial, is there anything we can do to rally around them to get them to a healthier place? So if it's an under 18-year-old, the parent clearly can partner with the pediatrician
3: to address it early because early recognition leads to earlier diagnosis and better outcomes, for sure. With a college age, again, parents are still usually financially responsible for that kid. So we're going to need you well enough to have you, you know, us paying for your college be something that's worthwhile, that your brain's getting something out of. If your brain is starved, you're not getting what you should be, you know, and can be out of this experience we need to get you taking care of the basics before before you launch and we want to make we're in, in so parents if you think of parents as not snow plows where they're plowing all the bad things away from their kids path and not helicopters where they're hovering and not letting a kid learn how to uh, try and fail and succeed in, in a different way we want to be lighthouses and, that mean, and this is borrowed from my friend and colleague, Dr. Ken Ginsberg. So a lighthouse will let that kid sail on those waters, but be a safe harbor and a beacon towards safety, and then will keep the kid from crashing on the rocks. So if it's an, an issue of safety or ethics, that's when a parent steps in. So eating disorders can be a matter of safety, and that's when a parent has to step in, or a loved one for an adult. So figuring out how we can be better lighthouses
2: can help. So I have a question with adolescents, oftentimes as a pediatrician, you do you see them alone or is the parent involved?
3: With kids and adolescents, even younger ones, we will
2: try to take time
3: with the kid without the parent. And okay. something we might say is with the parent and the kid, we like to take a little bit of time with you alone. And- If your parent wants time alone, we will respect their private time or uh, confidentiality also. Confidential care means that if you talk about something privately without a parent or a parent talks about something privately without you, we will respect that privacy unless one of you tells us something life-threatening or dangerous, in which case we'll say, listen, we have to talk to the other about it.
2: So are there times where you, as a physician, you see some signs that perhaps there might be an eating disorder and have to bring that up to the parent? Or do you find it's more often the parent has some inkling there's an issue? Which do you see more often? We see it both ways. Both ways. So uh, sometimes the
3: parents uh, will email me or call me or text me beforehand and say, I'm really worried because her best friend uh, told me that she's throwing up. or her friends have all said they're really worried about an eating disorder, but we don't see it. She eats great at family dinner and the kid may be skipping breakfast and lunch.
2: Yeah. See, that's the part that's so difficult as parents. Right. Or or even friends. I mean, I I can be with a friend that, has a lovely lunch and she may not eat anything at the, you know, throughout the day. But I I have seen friends that when you see a loss of energy or they're right. always in their workout clothes, that worries me too. Right. And, and again, say that somebody's uh, trying to be an elite athlete.
3: That's fine. But if here's mm-hmm. their energy intake and here's their energy expenditure, there may be a, an energy gap that they're just not realizing
2: they need to fill. Is that and classified so, as an eating disorder when someone over exercises or yes, that, can, that can be their form okay. of purging. And okay. the lay
3: person's sure. term for that is orthorexia. Uh, in the olden days, that would be the overexercising. Orthorexia is a term that has now evolved to overly healthy eating.
2: Oh. So we have
3: all these people with clean eating or other things where they're just missing food groups and not realizing it. But so Gosh. um the other layperson's phrase that's not in DSM five yet is relative energy deficiency of sport or REDS. So those are people where- Would you repeat that again? Yeah, relative energy deficiency of sport. So it's another way to think about anorexia, really, or the female athlete triad where it's loss of periods, eating, disordered eating and loss of bone. Uh, So that was but the female athlete triad. This is all the boys and men with those symptoms.
2: Oh,
3: and reds was oh, a I way see. for the orthopedic practices and, and sports medicine folks to be thinking about. And it's an easy one for parents and kids to grasp because if it, uh, I'll tell them, all right, here's your energy intake. Here's what you're burning off. You're, you know, you're fueling yourself like a little toy car instead of like a Lamborghini. Mm. We need to get you fueling yourself like you know, a the, Lamborghini. The, sure. Yes, exactly. Yeah, more fuel, baby, more fuel. <laughs> exactly. You're not putting enough gas in your tank. You're
2: not, you're not refueling yourself properly. All right. This is fascinating. Well, Ellen, thank you for offering all this factual information as well as the hope to many of our listeners today who are either suffering themselves from an eating disorder or have a friend or family member who is. So a few things I've taken away from you today that have been so helpful. Eating disorders affect people of all genders, ages, races, ethnicities, body shapes, and people with eating disorders may look healthy, yet may be extremely ill. All eating concerns deserve immediate attention. That's what I heard you say. Early diagnosis and treatment can increase success rates for recovery. I love that one month with the family, the FBT, and perhaps a year from then, they can be well recovered. And then encouraging the patient and family to build a multidisciplinary team from physician to therapist, to dietitian or nutritionist and others. Did I capture most of that? Yes, I, I,
3: I have one final thought from a very beloved patient. Who and I'm quoting the eating disorder lives in the gaps. It will find the gaps and split the kid from the parents and the parents from the care team. So the more you can stand shoulder to shoulder, the better. The eating disorder lives in the last bite.
2: Oh my gosh, the last bite. Thank you for sharing that. Hmm. Well, I'm going to be much more aware. And before we invite Eric back to join us, my last question for you, Ellen, is how do you keep your well in wealthy? Thank you for asking. How
3: we recharge is so important for each of us. For me, I love anything outdoors, anything with family, and I also love give back. That feeds my soul. So, for instance, I got to be on the USTA Sports Science Committee, and they needed a pediatrician because adolescent development seemed relevant for them at the time, um, in in those moments. And from there, as part of when I was associate chief of staff at the clinic. Our head of HR had been part of an organization called Tenacity, so we, which was tennis and literacy in Boston. We started that kind of a program 11 years ago in Cleveland, and it's now it's now called Advantage Cleveland because it's tennis, Advantage Cleveland, uh-huh. literacy, you know, so tennis, literacy, wellness, creativity, and fitness for urban youth ages six to 16, creating positive futures and hope. And the give back of seeing this program shine and flourish and go from its infancy to toddlerhood to
2: now, you know, early early, uh, adolescence or pre-puberty. It's been an amazing program. And that doesn't surprise me. Just getting to know you, even for a short while, your ability to give back is just remarkable. We appreciate all you've given us today. And we'll see what Eric has to say if he has any questions for you. Eric, can you join us, please? Absolutely,
1: this, this has been fantastic. It's such great information. Ellen, this is really, again, this is shocking news at the beginning, it makes a lot more sense. Barbara, you had asked about uh, the young men that I work with. Sure. One thing that we do see is, is a they come from an environment of scarcity many times. Some of them are coming out of lockup as well, which is also an environment of scarcity. And so what we see is some overeating to begin with, right? They're getting thirds and maybe fourths. They, they, they'll try to mm-hmm. get fourths. My wife is an amazing cook, but they're overeating at the beginning because they think the food's going to be gone or that's not going to be there um, just because they're in that mindset. Even though they see a very full fridge, very full pantry, very full freezer, they still have that mindset. And then one of the behaviors that we also see is when we start to restrict them, meaning like you have to stop at thirds. So we're not restricting them at first. These are healthy young men that are usually, you know, in sports and things. So we want to fuel their bodies. But when we start to restrict them, then we do see some stealing come into play because mm. they'll sneak some food. Because again, that scarcity mindset is still there. And that trauma well, that fear. they had, absolutely. So we we recognize those things within the the population that we work with because that's that's their main driver it's the stealing is not a byproduct of them being greedy it's them being fearful and so we recognize that and we teach to that instead Um, and they they usually come out of that very quickly because once they get comfortable in an environment that they know that the food's not going to run out and nobody else is going to take it from them then that behavior goes away but it does take some time because the trauma is real and we just recognize that so I, I love this conversation today. It, it really hit home and and I thought it was just amazing,
3: Eric, that's so perceptive. And with those kind of kids and with binge eaters, we often talk to them about hungry and full and if Absolutely. hungry one is, I'm so hungry, I could eat an elephant. And ten is, I've just eaten an elephant, mm-hmm. figuring out how to help them live from a, a in a three to a seven. Yeah. And, yeah, and to know that they can trust their environment and the people around them to make sure that they're gonna keep having food
2: will help them learn to live that three to
3: a seven over time.
1: Yep,
2: absolutely. Wow, great tip. Well, Eric, you and our guests, I think, hit it off too, because you you have an understanding. And what we want our listeners to know is that Dr. Ellen Rome, and that's spelled R-O-M-E, is at the Cleveland Clinic, and she can be reached at clevelandclinic.org. And if you search under physicians, again, it's R-O-M-E, or at her office, which is 216-444-3566. And in our podcast notes, we'll have this, as well as some helplines and other resource websites that can be of help. So again, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. You were just terrific.
3: So my pleasure. Thank you for addressing this awesome topic.
1: This has been fantastic. Like I said, thank you so much for being here, Barbara. Of course, thank you for facilitating this and bringing this podcast to the public. And to me, um, I just enjoy it so much. So thank you again. And our last thank you will always go to you, listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Keeping the Well and Wealthy with Barbara Archer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Barbara comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Hightower, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice, Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of
4: investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. High Tower Wealth Advisors and High Tower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of High Tower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. High Tower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.